Welcome to the Rick Roberts School of Laughs podcast, where we aim to make you bigger, better, and more bookable. From the aspiring comedian to the part-time pro, this is the podcast for you. We'll talk all things comedy from the page to the stage, and now it's showtime. Welcome back to School of Last Podcast. This week I've got with me Andrew Tarvin. Andrew is a very funny guy who I just found out had some connections to some of the people I knew back in Columbus, Ohio when I lived there. And it's going to be fun to talk to him. He's got a book out. We're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. And a few other cool things going on. Uh, thanks again for listening to School of Last Podcast. We're going to jump right into it today. Andrew Tarvin's with me. If you saw him, you might think he's a 15-year-old boy by this body type. And if you hear him, you might think he's a 13-year-old girl. But he is neither. He is Andrew. How's it going, sir? Uh, it's going very well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I surprise a lot of people. I remember I... Um, I caught up once, I think it was like when the PlayStation 2 or something like that was coming out, maybe the first Xbox, and I remember calling up to a bunch of different stores to see if they had them in stock, and at this point I was like 18 years old, so whatever you know system it was out of that time, and finally I found one that had a store that had it, and I went to the uh, uh, to go and pick it up, and they're like, oh, I, I thought based on your voice you were like an eight-year-old kid that was super excited about it. I was like, well... You know, so I've gotten some benefits, I guess, from this lustrous voice. You ever done any voiceover with it or any uh, characters or cartoon voices? Or uh, I don't. I wonder if I could. Yeah. Hey, you might want to look into it. it. Right? Well, I mean, that's that's the tricky part. I knew some people in uh, California who did voiceover stuff, and they were always doing, like, voiceovers of, like, younger people before they hit puberty because the people they had doing those voices, if they hit puberty, were done. Right, yeah. So, you know, it's a gift, you know. So that's cool. So, Andrew, I met uh, here in D.C. where I'm still at this NSA con- conference. Not by the time you hear this, but I've tried to make the most out of this situation and grab some folks. And we've got a mutual friend, John Garrett, who you guys heard like on the fourth or fifth podcast a year ago when this whole thing kicked off. And so you're in New York now. Uh, before we get to what you're doing now, let's go back to when you were in Columbus and you started doing a little bit of improv, you said, in college at the o- the. Ohio State University. Right, yeah, don't forget the article in front of that. That's the right. Ohio State University. Yeah, I was at uh, Ohio State getting a degree in computer science and engineering, you know, the degree you need for comedy. That's right. Of course. Um, and uh, my best friend wanted to start an improv group, so we started doing improv and we watched Whose Line Is It Anyway and tried to repeat what we saw. We had no idea what we were doing. At some point, we read Truth and Comedy by uh, Sharna Halpern and had couldn't understand what a herald was so he kept on doing short form oh, yeah, uh, and we were terrible at it to start but we had a lot of good uh, friends to support us and just you know got on stage and got better and that was my first pr- real performance experience i was never you know a class clown life of the party i'm that nerd academic type where uh you know in fourth grade i remember instead of like acting up when i finished my work i just got a second handwriting book and started to learn how to write with my right hand um, huh. You know, being that, that yeah, nerd yeah. type. But uh, it was fun to do. I fell in love with it. So we did improv and then I started to do a little bit of stand up uh, with it as well. And what was your favorite part about the improv experience? Were you quick witted with the reply? Were you a good character setup guy? What was your forte? It was more of the reply and certainly finding ways to use puns and like bringing, uh, you know, not necessarily at that time. It wasn't necessarily smart jokes, but smart topics into it mm-hmm. of just what my nerdy personality is. And then people being able to bounce off of that. So I was never really the person that you watched on stage. It was like, oh, wow, he's getting a lot of good laughs. But I, I like to think that I was a person that was helping set up other people. The utility man. Right, We yeah. had a couple of those guys in our group which were phenomenal, which could turn – they could turn the corner in any minute if they had to be. Mm-hmm. But there were definitely shows if we didn't have a couple of those guys in it. Especially we had two that were really anchors. 
if they weren't on the show, it was just a bunch of guys trying to throw punchlines out. You know, yeah. but they were so good at characters and keeping the through line going. Yeah, and I was also always the business side of things. I, uh, you know, I was like, hey, if we're going to do this, then we need to meet three times a week and uh, practice, and we should have a business meeting on Mondays, and you know, we'll, we'll tape our. Uh, sets and then go back and watch them and see how we can get better and stuff like that. So I was like, we're going to do this and make it, uh, you know, like almost like a business. And my buddy who, uh, the other one that wanted to start it, uh, was the one that made sure that we actually still had fun. That's cool. And how many people were in your group? Uh, we started with six. There were six founders that started. And then our first auditions, we had a whopping three people show up. So we took all three. <laughs> and so our first show we did with nine people. And it's crazy because I still go back. To, the group still exists at Ohio State. We just celebrated. I guess this year we're heading into our 11th year. And the name of the group? Uh, the Eighth Floor Improv Comedy Group. Eighth Floor Improv Comedy. Yeah, and so And they've done amazing things. They have auditions now and there's 100 plus people show up. Uh, and for us, yeah, we had three when we started. Whoa. I think next time I'm in Columbus, I have to go check it out, maybe grab the current uh, group and, and, and get them on the show. Yeah, absolutely. You should. Because they're, I mean, incredibly talented people. People have come back within that have graduated from the group and shared with them ideas. And they've moved into long form. And they're very, very funny people. And we have, I think, 12 alumni in New York doing different comedy things. Uh, probably equally as many in Chicago and a handful out in LA as well. So it's kind of cool to see where it's spread to and where, what people have done after they've, you know, finished it. And you were like the first little growth ring on that comedy tree, mm-hmm. which now has 19, 20 years of people doing it. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Cause I was, I was the first one, uh, out to New York. And uh-huh. so, uh, I helped a lot of people. I basically, my apartment for a while was a halfway house of getting out of Ohio and into <laughs> New York. People would come and stay with me or for a couple of weeks or a couple of months as they found an apartment, found a job, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's been really cool to see. And now there's people that are much funnier than me doing great things. And that's why I've, I've, I've shifted kind of my, some of my focus into more of corporate speaking and training and teaching engineers how to be more effective with people. Cause that's, you know, my background, what I came through. Um, but it's cool to see the, the comedic side of what people have accomplished. As yeah, well. it's pretty cool. And how long after college, I mean, you moved right into engineering right after that. Did you get a nice job right out or? Yeah. So I got, uh, I got the nice cushy corporate job right after graduating from school. I interned at Procter and Gamble in Cincinnati. And then as soon as I graduated, uh, started working there as a project manager in IT in Cincinnati and worked there for a year and a half and then moved with P&G to New York City. Okay, what um, year was that roughly? In? That was, so I moved in 2008. So I graduated 06, moved to New York uh, January 2nd, 2008 and uh, took about four or five months off getting settled into the city and then started an improv class at UCB and started doing stand-up more to get back into it. Because that was the reason why I told them internally. I was like, oh, I want to move to New York because I want to experience a new city and I've lived in Ohio my whole life and that kind of stuff. But the real reason was I wanted to do more comedy on the side. And you know another well-known comedian that came out of Procter & Gamble? There's a couple. So uh, my mentor and one of the people that I look up to left right before me is uh, the funny Indian Rajiv Satyal, who's um, currently blowing up and doing well. Josh Sneed, based out of the Cincinnati area, worked at P&G for a little while. And then probably the biggest name... Uh, at least that I'm aware of is Greg Warren. Greg Warren's a good yeah. buddy of mine. Oh yeah. 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 I remember doing, uh, stuff at go bananas and an afternoon on Sunday, we come in and do some writing, you know, before the last show of the week. 
And I was like, great, you've got some great stuff. You know, why don't I do this full time? He's like, I'm working at Procter & Gamble. I'm just banking some cash. Mm-hmm. Going to make sure when I make the transition, I've got a nice car that's going to run for six years. And he was very um, purposeful about the, his approach. And when he hit the ground running, he was a feature. He didn't have to put up with a lot of those MC gigs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I never wanted to be the starving artist type, which uh, so Even me, though we look the part. Me, exactly. I, mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> I look like someone needs to give me a, a cheeseburger. You look like we split half of a burger. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. What are these guys doing? That's hilarious. So you did the engineering, but you just found that even though you were good at it, it wasn't really, it wasn't your long-term thing to stay in. You even had that comedy bug before you even got out of college, huh? Yeah, well, so I, and that was the thing. A bunch of my buddies were graduating and going to Chicago, even without a job, and like, this is what I want to do. And since, you know, seventh or eighth grade, I knew that I wanted to work with computers. When we first got our, you know, first family computer, I'd take it apart and put it back together again. And I was the IT person, even though I was the youngest person in the family, like, really interested in that kind of stuff and I wanted to work at a computer company or start my own from about eighth grade on and so I'm getting ready to graduate and I'm like ah should I just go to Chicago and find a job or should I take what I've been building towards you know these last seven years and so I was like no I'll take the job and it was actually an incredible great decision because P&G was a phenomenal company for me to work for learned a ton of things was really passionate even about that work and it's where I discovered this idea of corporate humor or humor in the workplace. And it's a perfect fusion for me because I'm an engineer. I'm obsessed with efficiency. And stand-up and improv gave me the skills I needed to be effective with people. Because mm-hmm. you can't be efficient with people because they have emotions and feelings right. and all that. There's no, uh, <laughs> no cutting through that stuff. Exactly, right? <laughs> so you have to be effective. You have to change the way you do things. And so comedy gave me this great way as an engineer to interact with people. And the project management stuff and all the work that I was doing at P&G helped me build that. And that's what I love about it as an engineer is I get to do the fun stuff of tell jokes and tell great stories as a corporate speaker doing keynotes and that kind of thing. But then I also get to tell people how to be more effective. I get to tell them what to do as an engineer, and that's what I like. Yeah, so you get the perfect mishmash going down. You know what's funny is uh, I think if you talk to a majority of stand-up comedians that do corporate work, if they had to pick out two audiences that are the toughest to perform in front of – it would be a group of accountants or a group of engineers. So you broke the code with the engineer thing. Have you performed in front of a group of accountants to any uh, ha- success? I haven't. I, I don't think I've booked there. I'll, I'll leave all that stuff to John Garrett, who we both right. know, who's a CPA. But I went, and I think I would be okay because I actually really enjoy performing in front of engineers because that's my people. That's my natural mindset. And so the jokes, my math jokes and my engineering jokes and my efficiency jokes and all that kind of stuff people get. You know, I talk about every day is a constant struggle not to put on a fanny pack because <laughs> right. it's just so right. efficient, right? right. To, to have everything right. there or whatever is like, I would love to do that. And I'm definitely a function over form type person. So that's a group of people that I think gets that sense of humor. That's pretty funny. I know I, I have fun with engineering groups now, but when I first started, I didn't have the comedy chops really to get through some of those shows. Uh, even then, if you could be doing a show in front of 150,000, whatever, it didn't matter, 1,000 people or 100. And with engineers, uh, after the show, they would tell you it was one of the funniest things they've ever seen in their entire life. And during the show, you're like, are they even paying attention? And I had this one guy come up, and he had a napkin. And he had written down like a diagram of how he thought I put my set together, having knowing nothing about comedy. He's like... He's like, oh, I really found what you did it was fascinating. I was deep into it the entire time. I'm like, well, nobody ever laughed. He goes, no, we're all engineers. We're analyzing. And he gave me like this little flow chart. And he was he was pretty close to the way I had just happenstance put it together. Absolutely. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, applied improv training as a way to – it's one of the most effective ways to teach communication skills, leadership skills, that kind of thing because – 
not only is it, you know, interactive and people are doing it, but it also gives you repetitions on doing those exercises. And so rather than having to practice a communication skill in an actual conversation or in front of, you know, a hundred people that you're giving a presentation to, and you might be nervous with, you do these improv exercises and you get that repetition of it. But the interesting thing about doing with a lot of engineers is a lot of times they're figuring out how do we break this exercise or how do we, based on the rules that you say, technically do it, but also like kind of get away from it. And it's just a lot of fun to kind of have that interaction sometimes. I'm sure there's some one-upsmanship on the the lingo they're dropping in different scenes and that kind of thing too. You know, the one thing I liked about improv a lot, definitely compared to stand-up, is the fact that you didn't have to be the only person being funny on stage at at the time. Like there was a great cushion, like almost like a big umbrella of other talent on the stage. And as long as you kept it moving forward, things were cool. How do you apply that? Like in the business group, do you, do you do that when you speak on improv in the workplace in, in a sense? I mean, in a little bit, I think, and I talk with a lot of comedians out of New York because improv is seductive in a lot of ways because the work of improvisation is so much easier than the work of stand-up, I think. I think improv's a lot easier than stand-up, at least as far as getting into it. At the top echelons, there's a lot of um, you know similarities and everything there. But like the work of improv is you go and you hang out with a couple people. At least when I started hanging out with some of my best friends, we're making each other laugh when we're practicing, and then we go and do a show and make each other laugh because it's all new. Where stand-up is you go and you write material on your own, typically, or maybe with one other person. You get up and you try it, and then you go back and you tweak it. And so it's a lot, much like lonelier process, not as much, you know, not as funny happening all the time. And then also, like, to your point, you have to be funny. Like, if you're on stage and you're not getting a laugh, it's not that it's a bad show and you guys just aren't connecting. It's that you yourself isn't funny. And that's why I think stand-up is, at least to me, a little bit more rewarding is that it's like, this is me by myself mm-hmm. standing on stage and people are laughing at things that I have thought of. I remember the first, yeah, isn't it a cool feeling, right? Because I, I worked like in horse farms and, and stuff like that, tobacco farms. And so it was all this manual labor. I'm, you know, slugging a 35-pound weed eater around or trying to get a horse corralled and all these things. And the first time that somebody paid me just to get up and use my brain and have words come out of my mouth, it blew my mind. I'm like, the overhead on this is really low. (laughs) You know, you don't need 360 acres to do any of this. And it really was just so cool to have that little interaction going down. So you did a little bit of stand-up, so you had that perspective. You've done improv. Are you still currently doing improv when you're not doing your corporate speaking? Uh, I try to. I I travel quite a bit for work now, and so it's harder. Improv's a lot harder to do. So I was on a house team at uh, the Magnet Theater in New York City. It's a little bit smaller. So UCB is certainly the biggest one-up, right? Citizens Brigade in uh, New York. And I went through that in phenomenal training there uh, and then went to the Magnet uh, and got onto a house team on long form and then also musical improv with, you know, again, a voice like this. Uh, I'm not a singer at all, but I wanted to kind of conquer that fear of like singing in front of people. And it's very much like improv as a rule, you know, the karaoke rule with an improv is like, you just got to have confidence and you got to sell it. And that's how musical improv is. And so I was on a team for a long time, but then I started missing practices or I'd miss a show here or there because I was traveling. And so I don't do it as much, but luckily I'm part of an organization uh, called CSE Worldwide that produces comedy sports. And comedy sports is in 
25 cities, I think, at this point. And so when I travel to a city that has it, so I was just recently in Provo, Utah, and I played with Comedy Sports Provo and was in uh, Twin Cities, and so I played with them, was in Quad Cities, played with them. You know, if I go out to L.A. or Boston or Seattle or all these different mm-hmm. places that have a Comedy Sports, and I'll hop in and play a show with them. Yeah, uh, two or three of the guys that founded our group had come from Comedy Sports and some from Improv Olympics, and they kind of took what they liked of each and kind of melded it together for their own kind of style. But that, it's amazing that how it's kind of franchised out and it's been sustained for that many years. I mean, we're talking a couple of decades for maybe longer than that for yeah, comedy, comedy sports. Yeah, comedy sports is as old as I am. It started in 1984, which it blew my mind because I, I joined comedy sports in New York and um, played for a while. And then I went to every year they have a, a championship where all the cities get together and they play. And I was blown away because this was pe- these were people that had been playing for you know, 25 years at that point, And I had never seen short form like that. Cause like a lot of people, at least in the improv community, they kind of look down on short form improv comedy. And the way the way I see that is like, it's because they, a lot of times the short form they see is just a college group of people starting out like we were. Mm-hmm. And again, we weren't good because we had no formal training. And so it would be like, if you saw stand up comedy, but the only stand up that you saw was open mic, You'd be like, oh, yeah, stand-up's a terrible art form. Right. <laughs> but you go and you see a, gr- uh, a group like Comedy Sports play, and you're like, oh, this is professional people doing it, where they're taking, and they can have an incredibly poignant scene that has character arc and a uh, protagonist and an antagonist and a resolution at the end, and it happens to be a musical, and it happens to be done in four minutes. And it happens based on a suggestion from the audience. Exactly. So for the people who aren't familiar with Comedy Sports, tell them that format, because I think that's really cool, and it, it makes you play your A game. Yeah, the, the format is, it is, is comedy played as a sport so it's two teams playing there is a referee calling fouls and there's head-to-head games and then also individual games and the thing that i love about comedy sports is that it appreciates the audience more than any other show that i've been a part of uh, appreciates their fan base that's out there because as a someone that never was a performer i'm gracious anytime i hit the stage the fact that people are willing to listen to me because it was never something that i thought that i would do and so the fact that people were willing to give me you know, when I was first starting out five minutes, even of their time to hear the, the math jokes that I wanted to say. And so comedy sports, there's audience voting, there's audience volunteering. It's all about celebrating the audience and, um, the fans that are out there. And it, that's what I really appreciated about the show. And it's just a, such a fun thing to do. It gives you a framework that you can have a lot of fun within. That's cool. And describe for people who are now really interested, like what the process is for getting into a comedy sports team. Are there different levels uh, kind of like how Second City has their level up kind of program. Yeah, and it depends on what city you're in. They're all slightly uh, a little bit different, but a lot of them teach classes, and it can be an introduction, or you can uh, you know try out audition for the show. And they have different levels depending on where you are. They have you know the main stage group, and then they might have a minor league as well for younger people or people that haven't experienced it. And one of the really cool things that they're doing is. Uh, a high school league. And so particularly particularly in LA, they have, I think, 70 schools in their high school league. And so high school students starting at, you know, freshman year are learning comedy sports and they're learning these games. And improv, you know, it's something that I'm very passionate about as as far as teaching skills that help in anything, whether you go on to perform or not, is going to help you with making connections with people and being able to interact with them and give you presentation skills and all that kind of stuff. And so you have these young groups learning it. And so I was out this past championship was just in Quad Cities, and I was talking with someone, and they're like, oh, yeah, how long have you been doing it? And they're like, oh, I think like nine years, and they were 23 years old. Isn't that crazy? And they've been doing it for nine years already because they started in high school league and started doing It's a great things. thing, but it makes you a little bit mad, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Like, you know, it's funny how like you, you – 
paved the way for all this success to happen and for it to happen at younger ages, but we didn't get to be part of it. And it's yeah. just like, it's so frustrating sometimes, but, but I would much rather see funny, well-articulated young people who can improvise and listen, which is if you can teach a young kid to listen to anything, all the better. Right. But they're getting that, that at high school level. Yeah. Well, and that's, what's crazy is like, I'm, I'm interested to see what the next generation of comedians and even people are going to be like, who are raised by improvisers because I mean, yes, and is a fundamental mindset of improvisation, but it's such a powerful idea, not just on stage, but also this mentality of how do we go from here, regardless of what happens, how do we build? And uh, from that, it's going to be interesting to see what type of mentalities that hopefully helps to create of, you know, of I think I'm going to start comedy and other things. Yeah. Teaching my three-year-old some improv. Cause if I could tell her, let's use the restroom before we leave the house. And she can say, yes. And I'll have my snack before we do that too. Then we can get to where we're going right, with no yeah. interruptions. Yeah. It's awesome. That I never even thought of the context of you know, breaking it down. Well, it's kind of what improv is in a way is you give yourself permission to have fun and play games again. And so you have that naturally for a few years when you first start, yeah. you know, as a kid, but it's taken away from you by the, the, you know, all the schooling that we're taught and let's take these tests, learn how to take a test is what school is now. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and I, I do a lot of, a lot, a lot of applied improv workshops and most of my group is corporate. I talk to a lot of engineers, tech companies, uh, senior level people, et cetera. And we do improv and one of the exercises around kind of yes, but versus yes. And, and inevitably you talk to them and it's like, what do we do more of day to day? And everyone's like, yes, but, but when I work with younger groups, and you know, high school or even pre-high school, you do yes, but versus yes, and, and you ask that question of what do we do more of day to day? And they're like, ah, yes, and. And so it's through our education, which is understandable because we have to learn how to say no. We don't have unlimited budgets. We don't have unlimited resources. We get in this scarcity mindset. No, we have to say no to these things. And a lot of my trainings as I'm working with these groups is that just remember that yes and as a mindset still exists. Mm -hmm. And it's not about saying yes to everything. It's about saying yes as an improviser in that situation. And to me, humor in the workplace is yes and. You're going to have to work anyway. The and part of it is that you might as well enjoy it. Right. It's a simple thing for life. If if everybody's got that concept, there'd be no war. There'd be no nothing. Nothing with that. You can still have conflict in improv. But you have to find a way to agree to get past it, right? Exactly. Well, and that's one of the other things is like, I think it's a powerful thing. But the reason, the thing that actually really got me into it and the reason why I care and am so passionate about humor in the workplace and training it is it's definitely kind of the like feel good and have fun thing. But the reason why I do it is because it works with humans. It's what's going to make you more productive, more effective in the workplace. There's studies that show that people who use humor are given more opportunities in the workplace. And one study they found executives who used humor were paid more. And the more humor they use, the more money they were paid. And so there's a lot of uh, benefit to it as well, not just on the like, enjoy it, but also you're going to get better results. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. So that's, that's where you come in and you try to show them that. I'd imagine some groups, when you're first talking with them, they're like, I don't know, what's, what's the ROI, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've done that work. You've gone and done the research and you can present it with actual data that says this is going to make it's going to make way more money for you than for me. Right, exactly. I mean, so many people think of humor as a nice to have, right? I talk to most people. No one's ever really think, ah, oh, humor's a bad thing. But they think of a, a nice to have. But the reality is that 83% of Americans are uh, stressed out at work. 55% are unsatisfied with their jobs. And 47% struggle to stay happy. And it leads to 70% of the 
workforce being disengaged, costing the U.S. economy up to about $500 billion in lost productivity every year. And then you start to look at the benefits of humor and what they've shown and these different programs. And it's like, no, this is scientifically backed because, and it makes sense. I mean, it's, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh, what are you going to be more engaged in something that you're enjoying and having fun with or something that makes you want to tear tear your eyeballs out? Right. Oh, the fun (laughs) thing, you're actually going to spend more time on, you're going to be more engaged and you're going to put more effort into and all that. And so- uh, yeah, that's what I, I talk with a lot of organizations and then also start to teach them about how to actually go about doing it in a positive way. Because some people hear humor in the workplace and they think of, you know, some of the stand up comedy they've seen down in an open mic and they're like, oh, right. that wouldn't fly in a corporate situation. Yeah, it's like, oh, we'll do it in a better Bob way. Bob from accounting's tried to pull that off before. We don't want any of his humor in this work. Right. Some people's humor shouldn't be in the workplace, but there yeah. is workplace humor that's cool. Well, now, some, some of the styles as well, it's very much like you have to be selective. And for me, I teach that. It starts with the purpose of why are you using humor in that situation? Is it to get people's attention? Is it to help them remember something longer? Is it to build a relationship with someone? And depending on your reason for using it, you're going to have a different style or a different joke or a different story that you'll tell. Right. And that's the benefit of improv. So you can pull from any of those things and pick the best one for that group right in front of you. That's pretty cool. Now, I was was researching you a little bit and I saw you did a TEDx talk. Yeah. And where was that? And tell me about the process for kind of getting one of those and how you enjoyed the experience and what it's done for you. Yeah, well, it, it's been great. So it was at Ohio State. Uh, so I was actually on campus at Ohio State for uh, an A-Floor alumni show. So they have an alumni show every year, and I try to make it back as often as I can, mostly because now at this point the fact that it's still going, it's part of my legacy at mm-hmm. Ohio State, and so I want it to keep going. So I go back and try to be like, if you guys start to mess this up, I'm coming back right. here. <laughs> uh, but I like to go back and meet the new people and and – you know, share stage time with them and uh, have a lot of fun with it. But I happened to be there the same weekend that TEDx Ohio State was going on. And so I talked with one of the people putting it on. I was like, hey, this is really cool. Told them a little bit about what I was doing. They're like, make sure you reach out for next year. So that was 2013 that I saw it. The first year that they set it up, 2014 reached out, um, told them kind of was what I was up to. And I was going to talk about more of starting the eighth floor and what it means to do something at a a college because for us our motto when i was at ohio state was do something great and i realized we realized inadvertently that do something great in order to do something great you have to do something Mm -hmm. and so we didn't know what it was going to turn into but we just started to do something so but then they learned what i did and took the you know the computer science and engineering background combined it with humor and you know do training for that and so they're like oh let's talk about that so uh, that's how I kind of got into it. And it was probably the most nervous I had been in a long time in giving a presentation because it's, you know, just 11 minutes mm-hmm. and you want it to go well. And it did go very well. I had a lot of fun with it. And the response has been very positive afterwards. It was selected as a TED uh, weekly editor's pick oh, cool. uh, not too long ago. Um, or right after it first came out and it's been viewed well and it's, it's been helpful because there's a TEDx credibility with mm-hmm. it, which I think is helpful, but also more importantly is that it's an 11 minute version of what I do. And so you can see my personality on stage. You can see that I use scientifically backed things that I talk about and you get a sense of my nerdy persona and stuff. And so people have reached out certainly just because of the TEDx talk and they say, Oh, I saw this and thought it was great and want you to do this or um, you know, I send it out when people are like, Hey, we're interested in you. Do you have any footage? I can send them that and they can see the comments on it. They can see the number mm-hmm. of views on it and stuff like that. So it has been positive as far as boosting my credibility and being a marketing tool. Is that one of the things that led to you speaking in Norway? I saw a clip of you in Norway doing some stand up for a group and it, it seemed like a tech group, but tell me about that group. Yeah. So there was, uh, 
Norway was actually, I mean, it's one of these things. I'm an introvert very much by nature. You know, this conference has been a lot of fun that we're at, but I definitely need that alone time in my room of going back and stuff. And I still kind of get a little awkward sometimes in networking situations. But I was in a conf, I was speaking at a humor conference in 2011, I think. And I met up with a guy afterwards who um, was Norwegian and was there because he was interested in humor. And he's like, oh, you got to meet a friend of mine. Her, his friend happened to be coming to New York. Turns out she's a comedy festival producer. She was then putting on a festival. And six months later, she sent, them, sent me this email. And was like, hey, we, in Norway, stand-up still relatively new, at least compared to the U.S. And she's like, we have a lot of great acts, but we don't really have anyone talking about humor in the workplace. Or no one's talking about applied humor, taking concepts from humor and applying it to the workplace and that kind of stuff. So do you want to come over? So I went and did that and did stand up while I was there as well and had a blast and then was just recently back there this year as well for the festival and uh, got a chance to do some great shows with some very talented comedians and also go and visit Pulpit Rock, which is this huge rock with a 650 meter overlook and it was just gorgeous. So you found the doorway to Norway. Right. Yeah. Second time. You're going to go back next year. Is that going to be like on your annual thing now? I think so. We're going to try. I may even go back earlier this year because we did a couple of a corporate event while I was there and they went very well with the applied improv and that kind of stuff. And then from there, I'm doing a little bit more in Europe. I did a conference, a tech conference in Lagronio, Spain, and that got me booked in Copenhagen. So I went and did Copenhagen and uh, I've done some stuff in uh, Madrid and a few other places. And so I've been having fun over there as That's well. That's pretty cool, man. And, and Tarvin, what heritage does your family come from? We're English. And so there's actually a, uh, a Tarvin, England, which is about an hour outside of Manchester. And so I haven't been yet, but I think uh, next year for family vacation, we're going to go to Tarvin, England. And there is a St. Andrew's Church in Tarvin, mm-hmm. England. And so for the longest time, if you Googled Andrew Tarvin, my full name and what I use for the uh, uh, corporate (laughs) side, you would get this church. And then after about six months of putting up my website and doing some SEO and that kind of stuff, I have finally surpassed the church. When you Google Andrew Tarvin, you get my name. But I think that the church is still on the front page. Uh, The church's SEO needs to really pick up because every time somebody's going to look for a sermon, they're going to get that seven minute speech I saw or the seven minute stand up or the 11 minute TED talk. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So uh, just to kind of put a button on it here at the end, you've got a book now that you put together and it's, I'm sure part of your marketing materials to to get corporate work, but it's available to anybody who might want to add a little humor in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I, I put it together was I would do these events and people would say, okay, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea, but how do I get started? And I, I train a little bit on that, how to create your own ideas, but Uh, The book is 501 Ways to Use Humor in the Workplace, and the whole idea was, okay, if you want to use humor but you don't know how, here's a list of 500 ways. And so you can either just turn to a random page and pick one, or if you're like, hey, I'm going to send an email and I want to use humor, turn to the section on email. There's 20 different ways to use it in an email. And then we've also turned it into an app on your iPhone and Android as well. So for those of us in the technological generation of like, no, I want it there, and you can do filtering and uh, categories oh, and cool. filter all that kind of searches and stuff like that. And so it's just there meant to be, yes, I want to use humor, but I don't know how here's, you know, an idea. Cool. And speaking of ideas for, for people that are just kind of getting into stand up or improv right here at the very beginning. I know we have a lot that listen to the show. Uh, how about one little tip for stand up, one little tip for improv as they kind of get their feet wet? Something sure. you wish you would have known back then. Yeah, so uh, for improv, I would say, I mean, the ultimate goal and what they train and one of the mottos of UCB is don't think. The problem is I'm someone that thinks. And so I think if you're getting into improv and you're realizing that you're thinking in scenes, it's about shifting what you think about. And one of the things that I can think I think can really help is giving yourself a challenge. 
often related to the other person. So rather than, so that your brain isn't thinking, how is this improv scene going and what do I need to do next or that kind of thing. You give yourself a challenge like, uh, I don't want to let the other person see my left shoulder or I'm going to speak in a slightly louder voice and whatever they say. So if they get louder, I have to get loud. Like some small challenge like that. And what it does is it distracts your brain a little bit so that you're focused on that challenge and you end up doing a better improv scene because you're not worried about all this other stuff. I like that little game within the game. Exactly. Game within the game thing. And, um, then for standup, I would say, I mean, the, the general tip is you got to get up there, you know, as much as possible. But I think the, the tip that started to help me is talking about the things that I want to talk about. When I first started doing standup, I had this thing of like, what do I need? You know, everyone talks about relationships. Everyone right. talks about this. So I should talk about those things. And it's a standup comedy club. And the success that I'm having is still maybe talking about some of those things, but in a way that I want to talk about it. So I talk about math pickup lines and loving math. And I talk about the quantification of love and the, this concept of like, do people use that as like love units of how like this is worth love one love unit to do this. It's three to do this. It's minus eight to do that. And so it's, it's basically my engineering and nerd perspective on topics that other people can relate to because it's tough to go in and just do do straight math jokes to, you know, the Friday night late show. (laughs) But if it's in the sense of a pickup line and I'm, you know, you build up the performance of it and I'm pretending to try to pick up someone in a bar using, uh, you know, Hey girl, are you a vertical asymptote? Cause your beauty has no limits, <laughs> right? It's an right. awful joke. The math geeks will love, you know, the specificity right. of it. And then the other people will love, you know, the ridiculousness of it. That's cool. So kind of go, what's with funny, what's funny to you and put your spin on it and not, cause I know when I first started, I definitely was trying to figure out what do they want to laugh about and write jokes for that, which just set me back several years from when I finally stumbled onto what you just told everybody right out of the gate is put your spin on what you want to talk about. Yeah, and I think you still want to honor the audience and you still want to you know, treat them. Obviously, if something doesn't work, it's not the audience's fault. I think it's Patton Oswalt that has a great quote that says, you know, a comedian that says, uh, oh, this audience was too dumb for me. I'm too smart for them. They didn't get my jokes. And Patton Oswalt, I think it was him that his comment was, well, if you're so smart, how come you can't make dumb people laugh? Right. <laughs> and it's like it's never the audience's fault. It's about your way of how do you get them to enjoy or appreciate the things that you want to talk about. Very good. Well, I think those are two great tips to end on. Andrew, we're going to have all of your links to your t- TEDx talk. I'll throw in the Norway one too because I think that's a really good snapshot of your, especially your math jokes and the yeah. humor you had for that group was really good. And of course, a link to the book. Anything else that you want to let us know, uh, we'll put it in there as well. You guys, make sure you hit up. Are you on Twitter? Yep, I'm on Twitter at Let's humor that, that works. Uh, so Twitter is hum- at humor that works. Website is humorthatworks.com. Email people on. I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, I was kind of pulled into comedy, so I'm always more than happy to try to help and share with people so people want to reach out and they have questions and uh, like I said comedy sports and other groups I know a lot of so even if you're in a smaller area you're like where can I do improv or that kind of thing then uh, reach out andrew at humorthatworks.com excellent thank you very much Andrew it's good talking to you and getting to know a little bit better yeah thank you thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast for information on upcoming classes check out schooloflaughs.com and don't forget to subscribe and leave a ranking on iTunes Send any questions or comments to schooloflaughs at gmail.com. And until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny. Mm.